Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to my podcast, Second Chance. Now, before we get into my interview with a former sex worker, I want to announce the launch of my brand new TV channel, RaphaelRoe.tv. On RaphaelRoe.tv, you'll find award-winning high-quality documentaries about true crime and social justice. There's revealing and captivating stories about drug cartels, serial killers, and the inner workings of prisons around the world. Every month the channel will be updated with new content chosen by me. To subscribe, go to raphaelrow.tv, enter the code RRLimited for an introductory discount. raphaelrow.tv is also available to TV player customers with a premium subscription. The story you're about to hear on this episode is the struggles of a young middle-class woman who felt ostracised by her peers and so was driven to become a sex worker and drug addict because that's where she felt accepted. As a street worker, she was viciously attacked by a punter and seen as less than a victim by the police. Victoria, my guest today, has transformed her life and recently witnessed her attacker convicted and imprisoned not just for the crime he committed against her, but also others. Her past has become her strength, and she contacted me by way of a very long email letter and then agreed to share her story, a story that is not only candid, but also revealing. So... I, I obviously, I, I reached out to you um, initially and then between then and me sending you the email, I um, I recently found out that a gentleman who had um, attacked me back in 2004 had recently attacked another woman. And I guess I felt that I felt inspired by your story. For some reason, I just felt like I wanted to reach out to you and 
and tell you about my experience. And by reaching out to me, you're reaching out to to thousands of of, of others who who would, I'm sure, find what you have to say interesting. Because I did when I received your email with details about your life. I thought it was interesting, which is why I I contacted you back. Okay, let's go back to when you were a 16-year-old teenager. And I know that's not that long ago, but you were 16 once. And your letter starts by sort of saying that, you know, um, I was just making my way out into the world as a 16-year-old girl from a middle-class family with the world at my feet. Yes, so let's let's take your mind back to that 16-year-old girl. Who was Victoria as a 16-year-old girl? Um, I think I was, think, looking back, I, I never really knew my place in the world. I struggled to fit in. I had a very good upbringing, supportive, loving family, um, still do. I wanted to escape. I needed to escape this, this kind of closed-off world that I felt that I was trapped in. I got into a a relationship with a gentleman that was older than me. Didn't work out. It was difficult. I was I was you know I thought I I knew everything. Got to about eighteen and I and I just decided that I was I was going to run away. Simply put, and I I ran away to Leeds. I guess from where? From Kent. So you were growing up in Kent as a quite sheltered sixteen-year-old. Um, I would say so. Yes. Yeah. What is it you were trying to escape? This sheltered, comfortable upbringing. I was I was bullied all the way through school, from primary school all the way through to secondary school. So it's very difficult. I just felt trapped. I felt trapped in my own my own head, in my own life. There was there was there's no rhyme or reason to 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 how I felt. I I just I just didn't understand my place in the world. Can I can I just because I don't want to skirt over the fact that you just said that I was bullied at school for a long time. Here's your opportunity to tell those bullies and today's bullies what it felt like to be the victim of bullying. You know, if you could summarise it and say to someone now, look, if you're doing this, stop because. It's absolutely horrific. The impact it has on your your mental health, your emotional well-being, it, it reduces you to to absolutely nothing. And, you know, those are your formative years. Those are those are your your years that you're, you're growing and you're developing. And, you know, I mean, no, no doubt that that had a huge impact on how I felt, you know, reaching, reaching sort of 16, 17. I guess I felt, felt that the, the whole world was was against me and was attacking me. But as an adult, you know that it, it it's not really that so what would you say to a 16 year old 17 year old listening to this now who feels that they are being bullied I would say talk to people talk to people there are people out there that will listen to you that will help and you know even even at 16 you know 14 15 16 even the bullies don't really know what they're doing I don't think I think it's just about education and support giving people support so they can talk you know, don't keep it all inside because keeping all those feelings, all those frustrations inside is what's dangerous. You obviously felt there was no one for you to talk to. And so by the age of 18, you decided it was time to run away. Tell me more. As I said, I 
kind of got into a relationship with a, with a guy older than me um it didn't work out for, you know obviously since I was way too young he was he was in his early 20s I had kind of jobs outside of college and I couldn't I couldn't hold down a steady job because of my own mental health and one day I just I just said right that's it I need to I need to reinvent myself I need to go somewhere where nobody knows me and that's what I did I literally jumped on a train and went to Leeds with one bag on my back and it was like it doesn't matter it doesn't matter what I find when I get there I can I can make this work. Why Leeds of all the places you could have <laughs> put <laughs> bought that train ticket to why Leeds? I don't I really don't know it was I was looking for a um so I, I worked in uh, as a receptionist in a hotel and I found I just found a job with a similar with the same company up there and applied for it and they was like yeah that's fine it came with accommodation so it was easy it was an easy option so you didn't quite run away from home it's not like your parents all of a sudden overnight you you were a, a, a young teenager but 18 and ready to fly the nest and so you went to Leeds but it didn't work out for you in Leeds did it no no it didn't because I was I, I guess I was vulnerable I ended up falling into the wrong crowd thinking things that they did were a great idea I ended up self-medicating with cannabis just to kind of escape my own head that led onto um, crack cocaine and then eventually heroin so you were smoking cannabis taking crack and heroin and you were 18 years old I was 18 almost 19 yeah how bad was your use um when it got to about 20 I was using about 300 pounds a day so from the age of 18 to 20 you were using these drugs and were you still able to hold down your job no no I wasn't no what did you do I lost where where I was living I lost the job I started paying for a night here and there in bed and breakfast and a few of the girls I knew they sex worked for their drugs at that point I hadn't really seen the bad side of of life I'd been sheltered I guess quite a lot of the time things like that is glamorized and glorified on tv I thought well can't be that bad surely it's going out and having sex with men for money how how bad can that be so yeah by 20 I was um smoking about 300 pounds off of crack cocaine and heroin every single day and having to earn that money on the streets did you see it as a, as a desperate move because you've just described it as well how bad could it be I mean if it's a way of earning money I'll go and earn money that way I I generally think I just didn't care my self-esteem was very very low my mental health was you know it was really really low too I don't think I cared I think I just wanted to exist in this this place I'd created for myself and it was driven by your addiction to the drugs that you were using yeah never really wanted to break the law I never wanted to go out and shoplift I never wanted to you know do those those sorts of things so I was never um it sounds strange but that sort of stuff you know horrified me really if I was gonna do this I was I I wasn't gonna hurt anybody in my head that's what that's what I said I was just gonna earn my money smoke my drugs and that was how it was gonna be 
But I'm I'm trying to visualize your existence as a 20 year old who was you're heavily using heroin and crack cocaine, probably the two most um, addictive drugs. And, and the image that we would have of individuals who are addicted to those drugs are the down and outs. You know, that's the image portrayed. Had you reached rock bottom, that you were, you know, looking like you were a drug addict who was desperately in need of scoring every day? At that point, no. I wasn't. No, I know I wasn't. I was constantly told how pretty I was and, you know, how I shouldn't be doing what I was doing. I, you know, I've come from, they can tell that I've come from a good family. I've, I've got a posh London accent, apparently, next to people that speak with a Yorkshire dialect accent. So I, I guess I was just trying to pretend in a world that wasn't me. I was trying to fit in. I've always tried to fit in. And I think that was probably easier to fit in with people like that. It's so interesting that you say you, you, you were trying to fit in because I'm thinking the opposite, you, you know, that most people want to get out of that situation rather than be in that situation because they are the the odd ones out, if you like, who people walk past on the street or people look down at because they're drug addicts. A, a few of the, the girls I, I got involved in weren't, you know, they didn't look like your typical, you know, sitting on the streets. Um, yeah, you could tell that they had, you know, they they were using drugs, but it's so hard to explain. I guess that sort of those sorts of people were more accepting than the people that I'd trying to been trying to fit in with for the whole whole of my life, and it just had never happened. You know, I was constantly as we talked about, I was bullied, I was pushed out, I was so normal people, as it were, didn't want me. Okay, so let's try another, you know, section of society. And I just, I just kind of slipped into it. So you turned to sex work to to pay for your habit. What does that mean? What does that involve? So Leeds, obviously, is a, a large city centre. Um, it had a large red light area. Basically, what it, what what you see in the films, you know, a girl walks around a certain area that's renowned for it, and a car will pull up and ask you if you're. You know, if you're working, and you'll say, yeah, are you looking for business? They'll sort of say how much, and I would give them a price. Um, and if they agreed, I'd jump in. As simple as that. You say as simple as that, but it's it's quite a risky thing to do. Tell me about the first time. Tell me about the first time you decided. You said a lot of your friends were doing it, and um, you thought, right, well, I'll give it a go. Tell me about that thought process, you know, why you decided that you would give it a go. I know it was to support your drug habit, but then you had to actually do it. And if you've never done something like that before, it must have taken quite a lot out of you to make that decision. So the first time that I did it, I, I didn't have a drug habit. I was doing it for drugs, but I didn't have a habit. I went out with a friend or an acquaintance because... She she didn't actually believe it or not. She didn't actually tell me where we were going or what we were going to do. She just said she's got a great way of making money now to me. You know, that doesn't spring to mind. If someone's like, Let, yeah, let's come out, we're gonna we're gonna go get some money, and that doesn't spring to the forefront of my mind. And we drove, this was actually in, in Bradford, but we drove into the city centre and we got out what on the the um infamous Thornton Road in Bradford. And she said, what you need to do is you need to stand there. When the car pulls up, I'm going to get in it and you need to take down the number plate. I was like, 
okay, fine, clicked into my head what we're going to do. And then the car pulls up. This this lady had been using drugs on and off since she was 14. So, you know, <laughs> we looked in comparison, we looked different. And, and the guy in the car said, no, I want her. And so she was like, come on, you're getting in. I was kind of in autopilot. I didn't stop and think and say no. I just got in the car. What was you thinking about? Was you thinking about making money? Was you thinking about having sex? I think I was just trying to impress her. I got in the car and it was a he was a middle aged middle aged Asian gentleman. I think the feeling, you know, that feeling in the pit of your stomach sort of became apparent and and I realised what I was gonna have to do and I just thought that okay, let's just do this. This this can't be that bad. We got to a house and we went in and there was about eight Asian men in there. And they're all sat around the outside of this living room. And we'd basically been brought back to a house to have sex with all, all of these men. Again, I just, I did what I did. I felt, I felt, I don't know, I felt sick. I was almost... Even to this day, I was appalled that, you know, people can, that people treat girls like that. You know, you, you send one guy out to pick up a girl, to take them back and have sex with them, each of them. So, yeah, that, that's what I did. So that was your first time. And I hear you when you say you are felt appalled by the fact that men can do that. But that was the business this is no excuse, but I'm just saying that's the business you were in or you were now embarking on, which is you were prepared to have sex with a man or men for money. After that first occasion, did you continue to do sex work and, and how did it develop? Um, yeah, no, I continued after after that. Again, it sounds crazy, but it was it was easy after that. That first time was probably the worst that you can get. I continued to do that, but I was, um, I say lucky again, really strange choice of words, but I, I was picked up by a couple of lads who said, look, I know someone you can work. You don't need to, you don't need to be on the street corner. You can, um, and they took me up to a, um, up to a massage parlor. And that's where I, I, I continued to work for about a year until I say lost that job because of the drugs, even though it's, you know, it's sex work and you, you think surely there can't be that many rules attached to it. But I was, I was starting to lose my looks. I was, I, I had scabs on my skin from the crack. I, I lost that job and then ended up having to go back to the streets to fund my habit. That was when you'd hit rock bottom. Um, no, no. That's no, that was that was fine. That's not rock bottom. No. And and during this time, so you were on the streets, you were taken off the streets, and were you now working for a pimp or pimps? No. I I never I would never work for a pimp, no. Um my money was always my own. I might have had boyfriends that I funded their habit out of what I was doing, but um now I don't, you know, I don't want to discredit anybody or, or take anything away from anybody. But from what I saw, most girls generally work for themselves in those days. And, you know, whether or not you class a boyfriend a boyfriend as a pimp because they they take half the money for their drugs or not. But no, 
that wasn't really part of the scene that I saw. I, I worked for myself. My money was my own. When, when we, and you mentioned this earlier, on that, you know, prostitutes or sex workers who, who walk the pavements and get picked up in cars, it's such a, it, it's often portrayed as this kind of red light, dingy, dark, dangerous scene. Is that what it was like for you? It, it was where I where I worked. It was the bottom end of town and then going into the Water Lane area of Leeds, which was an industrial area. So it was all very closed off, but it was dark. There were streetlights. It wasn't too too scary, as it were. You, you didn't feel it, it was a dangerous job to do because you didn't know who was going to be pulling up in the next car. Or, or even the police seeking to arrest girls who were doing this because it isn't legal, is it? So you did have your vice officers that would drive around and they would basically stop a girl, take a note of what they were wearing and then let them go on their way most of the time in case their body turned up. That was that was what they did. Make a note of the girl in case we find her body later. If they wanted information from you, they would arrest you take you back to the police station and offer you a home office caution if you gave them some information. Information about what? Drug dealers, anybody that was wanted that they knew about. And you said bodies turning up? Yeah, there was a girl that I I knew. Her name was Lindsay. Her leg was found. We saw her get into a car. And then a few weeks later, her leg was found a few miles out of the city centre. Someone had killed her. and yeah. Didn't that scare you? Didn't that make you think, oh, my God, I've got to get off of these streets? Or had the drugs ravished you so much? Yeah, I had nowhere else to go. I couldn't go home. How could I go home to my mum and my dad and say, look at me, I'm a mess. I want to come home. I had a young, much younger sister and I couldn't do that to her. Well, I was going to ask, where were your parents and any other siblings or relatives during this time of desperation for you? I'm calling it desperation, but for you, I suppose it was work, it was drugs, it was your life. I lied to them. I lied to them and made out I was I was okay, I was doing well, regular weekly phone calls. Um, you know, there was never a point where I said, hey, I'm a drug addict, I need some help, because they would have helped me but I couldn't do that. I couldn't go home to the sleepy little village like I was. I went home a couple of Christmases, but I realised that stood next to them, you could tell there was something. You could tell there was something wrong. There was a difference between who you was when you left home and who you were returning. I was always quite curvy, size 16. I turned up on Christmas to size 8. Did they not know at that point that you were no longer the Victoria that that they knew? Yeah, they probably did. But you can't help someone that doesn't want to be helped. I think I confided in my sister that Christmas. I can't remember what year it was. I I told her what was going on. I showed her my arms. My arms were just, they were, they were covered in, like, I say track marks, but like bruises and bumps and needle marks. And I told her not to tell anyone, but obviously she, when I left, she told my mum it wasn't too difficult to believe because of what I looked like. What did you get out of taking the drugs? You talk about the marks that they left on your arms and the appearance, you know, the appearance that you were now carrying. What, what, what did you get out of taking these drugs, whether it was the heroin, the crack cocaine? 
I don't think I ever much like smoking crack. I think it just came. You know, the two generally go together. You've got your high and then you've got your low. The heroin for me, it stopped all those emotions, all those thoughts, all those feelings. It allowed, it just allowed for that quiet, that, you know, that peaceful sort of existence. When that wears off, you don't have time to think because you've got to go out and earn the money to support that habit. So it's a constant it's either total oblivion or you're too busy to think anyway. Back on the streets where you were sex working, something happened to you, didn't it? That that was not very nice. Can you talk about that? Yep. So I went out one night, I think it was um, around September 2004. I was 20, 21 at the time. I was approached by a gentleman, not much older than me, I don't think. And he asked me, or I asked him if he was looking for business, or he asked me, I can't remember the exact details. He said yes. So we began to walk from the corner that I was I was stood on up the road, and everything was normal. You know, it, it was a walker, just like hundreds of others. There was no difference. There was nothing to tell me that anything was wrong. I got to the corner of um, Sweet Street in Leeds, and I saw police officers go past or drive up and stop at the corner and they kind of wound the windows down it was almost like a you know cat and mouse game you try and get a client in and out of the way before the police do another circuit and and catch you so I said to the guy oh, great you know that's that's vice that's police and then all of a sudden they just drove off I don't know what you know whether they got a call or they saw something more interesting I don't know but we continued to walk down to this this back alley on Bath Road to these railway arches or this railway arch and as we started walking down the this alley he grabbed me from behind and he told me if I screamed he was gonna gonna kill me at that point I knew what was I knew what was happening that is the first time anything like that had ever happened but I just I knew obviously you've been grabbed from behind you know it's you know it's gonna happen he made me take all my clothes off so I'm stood there completely naked and he, he starts biting me like all over. It was my my breasts, my bum, cheeks. He made me lay down. It was it was really, really strange. It it wasn't just like a normal sex attack. It wasn't, you know, grab a girl, do what you're doing. He was like, right, do this and then do that and then then do this. And he couldn't um he couldn't actually rape me he he was i think i put it down to nerves but he couldn't actually penetrate me he he got really angry really frustrated with himself um and he just carried on biting me um i, I said to him look it's fine just you know just do just do whatever it is fine just don't hurt me uh, eventually he gave up and he told me to lay face down on the ground and all I can remember was this broken china or something underneath me it was just sticking into me um he took my phone and ran off the opposite way to the way we came in um I probably laid there for about five minutes I'm not sure I was scared I think I was just this is what he told me to do so just to make it easier on me this is what I'm gonna do and then I I found some of my clothes and I went and phoned my friend who was around the road 
possibly or with a client I don't I don't know I can't remember where she was but she she came and found me after that and I told her what happened thanks for sharing that I mean it must be difficult um was it something that you, you thought was inevitable that at some point working the streets in the way that you and others were and you talked about one of your colleagues former sex worker being killed and her leg turning up even though you were desperate to fulfill your drug habit was this something you were expecting to happen and had it happened to other girls and so that's why you seemed quite I say calm about it because you know your reaction on the face of you telling it now many years later is not hysterical and your reaction after the incident was to to go to your friend and not immediately go to the police and report what had happened because although you're a sex worker you're still a human being with rights and nobody has the right to to do what that man did to to you i think it it was always inevitable that you were going to get a dodgy client hunter whichever terminology you use it hadn't you know it hadn't happened so you know to that point so I guess you're just kind of on autopilot. You're existing. You don't, you know, you're not going out and worrying about those, those things. Because if you did, you wouldn't be going out there, would you? You, you. Um. How did you feel about it, though? Because I suppose that's a question that interests me. Because you know, people will think, well, because you're a sex worker, any experience that you go through on the street is part and part of the job. No, it's not. So let me ask you, how, how did you feel about somebody exploiting you in a way that you were not offering? You know, you were offering pleasure to men and probably some women who wanted to, to pay for your time, and, and that's your prerogative. But but then somebody comes and, and exploits you, took advantage. How, how do you feel about that? Did you feel about that at the time? Angry. You know, just because you're doing what you're doing, it gives no one the right. You're still in control. You don't, nobody has the right to do. You know, you, you have guys that like, you know, that have certain tastes and like certain things and that's fine. You know, you can cater for that. But that that made me angry. That, that made me so, so angry. And I think that was probably the the start of me really understanding the world that I'd entered into. I guess the reason I phoned my friend rather than the police was because that's just happened. Let's go buy drugs. <laughs> you know, you're not going to phone the police. I was, oh, I, by that point in the evening, I was probably withdrawing. So I probably needed, I needed some gear. I knew that if I did go to the police and I wasn't, still wasn't sure at that point whether I I wanted to, because yeah, you're right. You know, you still have the same protections, just a human being. That's not how the world sees you. You're the lowest of the low. You're a drug addict. You're a prostitute. You know, I use the word prostitute because that's what people use. You know, I, I'm very careful in my in my use of the word, you know, sex worker. You are a sex worker. You're not a prostitute. That, you know, that's such a derogatory term. But that's how the police, you know, the police see you. You're, you, I mentioned before, it was like a cat and mouse game. There was no respect. There was never any respect to girls. Yeah, you know, they, they made it very clear they would take a note of what you were wearing in case you were murdered that night. It was almost amusing to them. When you used the term sex worker 
What do you mean by that then? Because you distinguish between the derogatory term of prostitute and sex worker. What 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 does it mean to you and other women and men who who sex work? You're doing exactly that. You're you're having sex with men for money for a living, whether that's a living to survive using drugs or whether that's you know there's many women around the world that do it as an actual job, and that's exactly what it is that you have sex for money so that is a job and your view of people who think well that's not what what you're supposed to do you're not supposed to sell your body your virginity to to a man um for money you've got builders that go out every single day now you know i'm not saying you know my lifestyle now would be you know i would i would do the same thing but you've got builders you've got laborers every single day that that sell their body to somebody and do some sort of manual lifting, manual, you know, with their body. Why? Why should it be any different? Why should any, you know, a sex worker have less rights or be viewed any differently because they just use a different part of their body? It's an interesting one, and I don't want to get into that into too much detail. But I, 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 I hear you, um, and I can hear lots of people probably thinking, well, it's more intimate. You know, somebody doing some physical lifting of bricks is very different from a man using his penis to penetrate a woman's vagina. And I'm using very simple terms here, but but there is a big difference um, and it depends on what side of the fence you sit on to what your argument is. I don't have a view, to be honest. It's entirely up to the individual what they choose to do with, with their, their life. I'm more inclined to think, is there another way of helping that person beat their drug habit so that they can sex work, without it being driven by some other motive, if you like. And I think that's that's what started to happen around that time. There there become a lot more girls out on the street and and there was a more three sixty approach to helping these girls. So you obviously had the vice officers that were there for protection. You would then have the drug and alcohol agencies that would, you know, have that multi agency approach and go out with them and offer the, you know, offer girls appointments for assessment for drug treatment perhaps they knew that the girl was also suffering um some sort of domestic violence they you know there was lots lots put in place at that start you know at that point for girls to help them did you ever report the man who sexually assaulted you i uh, yeah i i did i i felt that it was the right thing to do i felt felt that i had an obligation to other girls as well. I phoned the police when I got I got home and they came out and they were wonderful. They were really, really nice. I, I didn't expect to be treated normally. That night they came and did and they, they did all the like the forensic bits and pieces, took an initial statement and then they left and they asked me if I could come to the police station the next day to give a recorded interview, so a formal interview. Um, which I did. I, I, well, I suggest that's not a problem. I can do that. Got up the next day, went to the police station. Uh, I'd been sat there all day. I was in pain. You know, the, the as I mentioned, the assault was 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 weird. Things he did. Then she thanked me for my time, and she got up. She goes, "If you could just stay here a second. I was like, "Yeah, that's fine." And then two policemen came into the room, and they said. We, they've just got something to say to you. And I was like, oh, okay, maybe they've caught him. No, 
were arresting you in suspicion of theft. Sisters, and, you know, right straight after my, my interview, they were arresting me for theft. I was like, I, I don't understand what, you know, is this some joke? Are you winding me up? They accused me of stealing money out of someone's purse in the police station. Everywhere I went in that police station, and I say everywhere, I only ever went to the toilet, and I was escorted by another officer the whole time. And they thought that I had stolen money. And you might think, well, you're a drug addict. Did you? I sold my body because I didn't want to. I didn't want to break the law. I didn't, I guess, sounds strange. And I said I didn't want to fall that far down into that lifestyle. (laughs) I never wanted to go to prison. The thought of prison scared me. That was the only thing that ever scared me. Um, And they locked me up. So you went into the police station to report the assault. And the, it, it is, am I right in saying the attempted rape or was it rape? I'm... It was uh, attempted rape, serious sexual assault. Serious sexual assault. And you ended up getting charged with, with theft. I was arrested for theft pending. Um, they were going to get fingerprints off of the the purse. And what was really strange, off of the money in the purse. Now, I was supposed to have stolen the money out of the purse, yet they were going to get fingerprints off of this money anyway they you know the particulars of it aren't you know important they released me on bail and they said they'll be back in touch within about six weeks and they came around a couple of weeks later and they said we haven't caught anyone we've had no leads on the attack and by the way we're not taking the theft any further because it wasn't i think they said it wasn't your fingerprints on the purse so that ended that that ended that that ended both things <laughs> What what happened in your life next? Because you've gone through this traumatic experience. Did you go back to sex working? Yeah, I did. It took me a couple of nights. I I had a really, I say, really good friend, and we've both, you know, sorted ourselves out. We've both got really, you know, different lives these days. And she's the only person that I would ever class as a friend. From this period in time, she went out and she she earned money for my drugs that night. She sold her body for you. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that does require a friend. At the beginning of, of our chat, you said one of the reasons that you got in touch was because the man that attacked you recently attacked another person. So just bring that story to an end for me. So this, although the police didn't capture this guy at the time, at some point they did capture him. I mean, just tell me what happened. Yes. So in... 2000 so it was about 18 months two two years later they came they knocked on the door and they asked if they could speak to me like yeah no fine come in and they said they've arrested somebody they've he i think he was arrested for some sort of disturbance or criminal damage and a dna match had hit for the assault and they said they just wanted to keep me informed however he hadn't given them anything other than it was consensual in the interview Obviously, my questions were always, you know, how can it be? How can someone bite you so badly, you know, leave indents into your skin and then be able to say that's consensual and then have the police agree with that? They then said to me, it's going to be really difficult to prove because you're a prostitute, you're a drug addict. And there were two different types of DNA, two different DNA samples on your body, which I had a boyfriend at the time, you know, so any... And it does, doesn't have to be intimate. It could just be a kiss on your cheek, anything. 
and that's what they used. They said that because and and my boyfriend's DNA was on file, so they knew who he was. They could confirm he was my boyfriend, but still they used that as an excuse. I was an unreliable witness. So they didn't pursue charges against this individual. They they had had in custody for a different incident because they didn't believe you. Basically, they didn't believe me. But they did at the time, Victoria, didn't they? I mean, at the time that you reported it, you said the police were very good. They took DNA samples from you, but they were unable to, at some point, detect find this individual. Two years later, they found the individual. But he was saying he didn't assault you. You were saying he did. They said there weren't enough evidence, you're a prostitute and et cetera. And so they put the case at an end then? Um, yeah, initially at the beginning they came out and, and even through through the interview process at the police station, it was, you know, I felt I felt valued. I you know, I was I felt I was believed. There was nothing there to suggest that I didn't feel that I was. I think that the Crown Prosecution Service will only prosecute if they've got a good chance of conviction. Now, for them, I was just unreliable. I had a lifestyle that didn't fit into the norm. Was this individual ever convicted of the crime against you? He was. In 2012, now my life had moved on dramatically at this point. So that was when he was first arrested. That was 2006 and 2007. I fell pregnant with my daughter and it changed my life. Suddenly I had something more than just me. I, I look at her now and I just, and I'm, I'm in awe of just what this tiny little blip can do in your tummy. You know, even now she keeps me on the straight and narrow um, so on the, the 4th of April 2007, I got my first clean drug screen. I've, I've been clean ever since. Well done, you. <laughs> Thank you. How? How, though? Can I just ask briefly how you do that? From somebody who who was addicted to such hardcore drugs, was prepared to, you know, become a sex worker to support that drug habit and survive. How do you go from there to stopping just like that i i tried to get clean before i tried i've done i've done rapid detoxes i've done methadone maintenance i can only describe it as just that i i had i had something more important than me that baby growing inside you yeah there's no i'd seen girls that had gone had their children removed i'd seen girls that were leaving their kids at home and going out to work there is no way there was just never any doubt in my mind that wasn't going to be me I think it gave me I don't know it's like a light bulb moment I I guess it just I don't know it's like it was it the power of you know that kind of maternal instinct that I needed to protect her or you know I needed to protect this baby I don't know I don't know what it was it was just I had something something more powerful than just me that I had to think about so you got clean and at some point after that you got the call from the police to say that this individual had been arrested? So in 2012, I came home. I'd been out somewhere that day. And there was literally a screwed up piece of paper torn off of an A4 sheet. Please contact British Transport Police on this number. Screwed up, shoved through my letterbox. I looked at it and my daughter was about 
trying to think she must have been she must have been about four four then I put her in the living room I went into the kitchen I I looked at this note again and I was thinking okay this can only be one thing there is I don't know if it was instinct I don't know if it was just because it was British Transport Police because it the attack fell under their jurisdiction I don't know I picked up my phone I phoned them and they said they'll get someone to call me back I said no I need to I need to know what it's about and I said to them, is this anything to do with a serious sexual assault? And he went away and he came back and he said, it is. We've got someone in custody. I was like, okay, wow. And he said, we're going to get someone to come out and speak to you. I just, I, I fell to the floor. I fell, on my, I fell on my kitchen floor and I cried and I cried. Well, they'd said they'd got someone in custody and he's admitted the offence, sorry. So at that point, I, f- I fell on the floor, I cried like these huge sobs just came out of me. It's like, I could now be believed. I can't, I can't explain that, that feeling, but also anger. Why does it take the guy that did that, that took that from me to admit it before I was then believed? What happened to him? Um, he was, interestingly enough, it took a year to get to court. He was convicted of serious sexual assault. And he was sentenced to three years in prison. Interestingly, during sentencing, the judge said to him, for your early guilty plea, I'm going to remove two years from your initial five-year sentence to take it down to three. Now, that's that's crazy. That's horrendous. How can they say, I'm going to take two years off of a sentence for a serious sexual assault for an early guilty plea? This whole offence spanned three police investigations took you know almost 10 years at that point to complete and get to court and get a you know get an outcome and the judge the judge just decided he was going to give him time off of a sentence you said in your letter to me that you you forgive that man for what he did to you do you forgive him and why do you forgive him so during one of the i was always really certain I could never remember what he looked like there was always a space where his face would be in my dreams I would I I wanted to take back control I was no longer that that addict I was no longer that you know that that sex worker I I was someone different now so I could I could handle that I could take control and I I went to court one day and he and he was sat opposite me he I don't think at first he clicked and you know it clicked to who I was I followed him into the courtroom, sat, listened, got the new court date, left. I went to the went to the library in Leeds. But as we were coming back out again, he was right in front of me, followed me. And he said, can I talk to you for a minute? And I just, what the hell do you say in that situation? That's not, that's not something you ever, you plan. So I just quite calmly looked at him and I said, yes. And he goes, are you the... And I stopped him. There's no way I was going to hear those those words come out of his mouth. And I said, yes. You know, yep, hey, that was me. He said he wanted to tell me how sorry he was. And he he proceeded to tell me things that happened in his life, in his childhood, that he'd been a victim of violence and sexual exploitation. I don't know. I just, I felt sorry for him. And this is only me speaking. So, you know, I don't know how however people see it but and I know there's that that thought process behind if you know if you've had something bad done to you you wouldn't then go and do that to somebody else but I look at you know I look at my children and I think if you've had that start in life how do you ever grow up to be a well-balanced 
normal, you know, member of society, it, it must be impossible. And I was like, okay, that's fine. You know, I, I understand. And it wasn't until, I think it, was, it wasn't until we went into into court on the final day that he was stood there with his bag. And I really felt sorry for him. And I went up to him and I said, look, you know, I forgive you. I really hope that you get, I really hope you don't go to prison. I hope you, you know, you get, you know, some sort of secure unit where you can help get help for your, you know, your mental health, your demons, so that you can go on and, you know, thrive when you're, you're released and not, not how a lot of offenders go to prison and come out. You turned your life around. You say you stopped using drugs when you fell pregnant and, you know, took on your responsibilities. And, and that was the sort of light bulb moment for you. So who is Victoria today and what does Victoria do today that is very different from who she was when you were a sex worker and a drug addict? I'm just a boring mum that goes to work every day and I just try to be the best that I can be. You know, I'm not going to let – I don't let my story define me. I have an interest in one, but it's not what it's not what I am. It's not who I am. It's made me who I am, but it's not what I am. But you also work in the criminal justice space now almost. Is that right? I do. When when I got clean, I was interested. I was offered a really, really interesting opportunity to become a, a mentor to other people. And I just grew from that, really. I worked with different organisations, different charities. Yeah, I've, I've set up some really successful projects to to help other people in a similar situation to me to get that training, to gain those skills, those qualifications, to go on and, you know, use that lived experience. That lived experience is what is what it's all about. You know, having someone in front of you that has that that knowledge and that can really empathize with you. That's what it's all about. And that's what I'm I'm passionate about continuing to give to people. So what does the the phrase second chance mean to you it sounds like you are trying to help other people in their lives embrace a, a second chance by using your experience to to educate them of the life they could end up living if they don't stop maybe taking drugs or or don't deal with issues at home that makes them feel that they need to run away and maybe turn to to things like crime so what does a second chance mean to you, Victoria, for yourself and for others? For me, it's given me an opportunity to actually have a fulfilling life. Whereas 14 years ago, I couldn't see a life. For other people, just, just take that, take what you're offered. It's it's there. It's there. You just need to embrace it. You, you know, we've got so many wonderful services these days that will help every part of, you know, the person I was back then every part of your life and you know they really will just grab it with both hands and embrace it and finally if you were talking to your your 16 year old self who was about to pick up that bag and get on that train to Leeds knowing what you know now the life that you you led which like you say your past is your past and it's made you who you are today and you're very proud of who you are today. And and are you 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 had 
a daughter, but have you had children, got married, etc. since? Yep, I got married. Um, I've got three children. Yeah, they range from primary up to secondary school age. And does everybody around you know your past? Um, my close friends, my family. I've I've always been very open and honest with work because I obviously have to go through security checks and and DBS checks and stuff like that. So people know that I've got a past. It's not something that I particularly shout about. You know, up until this point, I've always been very select of who I speak to about it. And if you were talking to your 16-year-old self with that bag and about to get on that train, what would that one underlining message be today? Talk to your mum. Talk to your mum. If you can't talk to your mum, there, there must be someone that you can talk to and tell them how bad it is. You know, I'm, I'm always terrified. I'm like such a protective mum. And I think if this was, if I was to put my daughter in my position at that age, I wouldn't have to talk to me. Just talk to me. It's, it's not that bad. It's not as bad as you, you know, when you keep something in your head, it's worse than, than when you, you can talk to somebody about it. It can be resolved. Don't run away. Don't hide from things. Don't, yeah, just don't, don't hide from things. Face them. It's a lot easier said than done, isn't it? It's one of the most difficult things that teenagers find to, to do is to talk to these, the parents about their situation. Some do it quite easily and it helps. Some people can't do it. And so they have to seek other. And that's why people like yourself who have lived experiences, who can reach out in that world and that space can make a difference. Well, look, Victoria, your, your story is really interesting. And it's always good to just hear from people like yourself about you know, what your life's been about, because there will be other people going through what you've gone through, or they know people that are experiencing elements, you know, of your life, whether it's drug taking, whether it is, you know, being bullied, whether it is working in the sex industry, or even thinking about it. What's your final message? Don't keep things to yourself. Talk about them. You know, talking, it has been probably one of the, the most powerful things that's helped me in my life to stay on track thanks for listening to this podcast and please share and follow us on social media the aim is to upload a new episode with a new guest every week if you want to support help produce or advertise on this podcast please get in touch if you think i should get someone on the show drop me a direct message via instagram twitter facebook or any other means you have to make contact this episode was produced by audio avalanche the original music by J-Row Productions, the cover design work by Studio Minerva, and me, your host, Raphael Rowe. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. 
Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.